Welcome back to the Occasionalist. Matt Pagel here once again flying this ship solo as we finally wrap up um, Fright Fest 5, The Body Politic. Uh, kind of, this month definitely flew by. Um, it's been a lot of fun diving into all these movies and kind of giving you the primer episodes and everything, kind of, you know, what we're looking for and and the things that, uh, the, the stuff that we're trying to to get at in terms of how certain political um, entities uh, can create horror for its uh, uh, for those that it's trying to govern. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun, and I'm really excited to wrap up with this one. Um, like I said, I, I, I put these in sort of ascending order of, like, threat level. Um, legislation uh, being, like, the least threatening uh, individual politicians, kind of representing uh, individual politicians and also other like elite class uh, ruling people, people who are like uh, broad scale decision makers uh, being sort of the next jump up. And then finally getting up here to those who enforce the rules, who enforce the laws, who enforce the decisions. I'm um, talking about the military and the police, you know, state sanctioned violence. Um, this being the, um, you know, the, the biggest threat to the individual and society. And not only that, also, also this represents my, one of my favorite genres of horror um, psychological horror, and then right next to it, action horror. Um, I, I'm, I'm a sucker for action horror movies. Um, I'm not sure. I, I was kind of trying. I was thinking about this before. I'm not 100 sure why. And I think it's because I, you know, I have just to guess at it. I think it's because, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, my, my throat's a little bit sore. I think it's because of playing a lot of uh, action horror video games like Resident Evil. Uh, the Last of Us. Uh, oh gosh, I know there's some other ones that that, that pop to mind, but um, there's just like a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, action horror video games available, and even in some more straightforward uh, you know action video games, first person shooters and stuff, a lot of them have horror elements. Um, you know, even Halo has horror elements. Uh, Destiny has horror elements. There's there's a lot of video games that have horror elements. Obviously, uh, Call of Duty always has like their zombies map, you know, or whatever. I think one one version of I think one version of Call of Duty it wasn't zombies it was like these like weird aliens um, that you had to defeat so I you know I I think it's through that and then some of my other favorite movies like Aliens um, you know that's you know, there's a, there's an action horror movie uh, Dead Snow action horror movie like those I I guess it's just you know those there's just something about sort of I, I guess the the combination of sort of good, clean, um, you know, classic action met with uh, <clears throat> met with like kind of these freakish entities is just something that I've always enjoyed uh, watching and obviously playing. Um, so I'm really excited to get to these uh, final two movies um, as we as we wind down this month. We are talking, of course, as I mentioned previously, we're watching double feature. Um, and our two movies that represent the enforcement branch of the body politic are Death Watch from 2002 and the horror zombie classic Day of the Dead from 1985. Now, <clears throat> I'm gonna keep this gonna keep the the format roll in the same way I've been doing it all month. Um, so we'll start off with a little bit of um, kind of background, you know, the the people involved and some background info uh, for for each movie. So we'll start with Death Watch. Uh, that's the one I watched first. And Death Watch, like I said, from 2002, written and directed by M.J. Bassett. In fact, this is her first. Um, this is her first film, uh, which is uh, pretty interesting. I, I always enjoy watching firsts uh, from uh, from directors. Uh, so this is her first film, though. Um, her background was in like documentary filmmaking, so uh, not like a, you know, not like a, a complete newbie to film, but you know, someone who finally like broke across to uh, entertainment. To more, I shouldn't say entertainment, uh, to, to fictional, um, to fictional movies. But this is MJ Bassett's first movie, written and directed by her. Um, <clears throat> and it stars, both of these movies, um, I probably should have put this under the similarities kind of thing, but both of these movies have a cast that you definitely know some of the people, you definitely know several of the people from Death Watch. Um, you might not know anyone from Day of the Dead. Um, but both of these kind of have bigger casts that are... Um, for the most part, lesser known, uh, I suppose, unless you're in England for Death Watch. So <clears throat> in terms of the uh, the actors, I, I put them as opposed to um, as opposed to order of importance to the story. I put them in order of people that you'll know. So 
Uh, to start off here with Andy Circus, you know Andy Circus, Gollum, um, Caesar from the uh, from the Planet of the Apes movies, um, and now he's uh, he's been in like Marvel movies and all kinds of stuff recently. But uh, oh, and uh, 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 oh, Alfred uh, from the recent Batman movies. So Andy Circus, uh, our uh, our insane private Thomas Quinn, not insane, but just violent and kind of over the top. Uh, Sar- uh, private Thomas Quinn. Matthew Reese from the Americans and uh, some other some other really excellent TV shows um, plays Corporal Doc Fairweather. Uh, Jamie Bell, who you might know from the most recent Fantastic Four, um, playing the big stone guy Ben Grimm or Ben Grimm, I think. Yeah, um, Jamie Bell as our as our teenage private Charlie Shakespeare. Of course, we got to slide in uh, Shakespeare there uh, in, a, in a British war movie. Uh, Hugo Spear as Sergeant David Tate. I know Hugo Spear just from some British shows. He's like very familiar face. I've seen him before. Uh, Lawrence Fox as Captain Bramwell Jennings. And oh, Lawrence Fox um, kind of has become a despicable human being. He is he is red pilled to the gills. Uh, if you're curious about Lawrence Fox and his uh, recent issues, and that's putting it very friendly. Um, you can go ahead and, and just go ahead and Google uh, what Lawrence Fox has said about some people recently. Uh, Torben Liebrecht is Friedrich, our German Frenzel dot. Um, and uh, Torben Liebrecht, um, I know him from, uh, I want to say Altered Carbon and something else. And now we're starting to get into the people that I only recognize facially, f- briefly from seeing them in other British productions. Chris Marshall is our private Barry Storinsky, our, our marksman. Hans Matheson is uh, Private Jack Hawkstone. What a great name, Hawks Jack Hawkstone. Sounds like a, sounds like he's uh, he should be like a that that sounds like a British procedural, like a police procedural, like DCI Hawkstone or something. Um, anyway, <clears throat> uh, Hugh O'Connor. Truly, have no idea who this is as Private Anthony Bradford. Dean Lennox Kelly as our token Scott Private Willie McKin- uh, Willie McNess. Uh, again, have no idea who he is and. Rodri Conroy, uh, Private Colin Chavez. Again, have no idea who those those last three are unknown to me. Um, but you know, that's big cast full of British people. I'm sure if you if you watch uh, a lot of British television, I'm I'm sure these people, um, this, I'm sure some of these people pop up more regularly. Uh, but uh, if you're one of if you're in America, you probably don't know who some of those people are, uh, or only are like me, very passingly familiar for who some of those people are. There's really not, there's really not like a ton of uh, trivia for this movie, which again, it just kind of surprises me given that this is a first movie, that it's not loaded with like stories of of people not knowing what they're doing. Um, so there's not really like much trivia for this movie other than um, a lot of the a lot of the dialogue had to be re-recorded in post production, which is it's not that apparent. It's not that apparent, but there are a few scenes where. It definitely, you can definitely like feel that sort of disconnect where the the voice, not that they don't match up, but they just they the volume doesn't feel like it matches the scene quite. Um, but I, I was kind of surprised at how the the lack of you you hear stories on a lot of first filmmakers movies. You hear a lot of stories about like just sort of not like they're nightmarish. They're just like weird things happen because it, it is the first time that they've done this. And I was kind of surprised at the lack of at the lack of sort of, of the lack of trivia and sort of funny stories about, uh, you know, from the set, um, uh, for this particular movie, which was just surprising, I suppose, just kind of interesting. Um, and as far as the, as I mentioned before, I, I, there's, there's a, there's in this particular movie, there's some people that you probably don't really, aren't really aware of. Um, the director herself is probably someone you're not very familiar with, but if you've seen action TV shows in the last like 10 years or so, You've probably seen an episode that MJ Bassett has directed, more than likely. Um, she is heavy; she's done done other feature films and stuff, but is very heavy in um, in directing in directing a TV series at this point. Uh, in particular, she was um, she directed like I want to say like 15, 20 episodes of the TV show Strike Back, which is definitely kind of a fun throwback to eighties and nineties era uh, action movies. Uh, she directed episodes for Quantum Leap, for Ash vs. Evil Dead, Reacher. Um, I know there's a couple of other uh, other ones that she's directed as well. Um, so, you know, you you have probably unintentionally have seen something that she has uh, that she's directed uh, without actually knowing it. But uh, otherwise, otherwise, a kind of uh, 
a kind of low key, um, a low key director with um, other than I suppose other than Andy Serkis kind of at this point in time in 2002, a fairly low key cast. I mean, Andy Serkis would have just finished playing Gollum at this point in time. So certainly he would have been the biggest name attached to this. But uh, otherwise, you know, Matthew Reese uh, hadn't broken over in America yet. Um, in fact, I, I barely recognized him because he just, he looked so young. Um, Jimmy Bell, again, wouldn't have broken in America yet. In fact, he was like, he, in this in this movie, he plays a, uh, a 16-year-old that lied about his age to get to go to war. He's quite literally 16 when this movie's being filmed. Um, so yeah, this is a lot of... Um, a lot of people, a lot of people in this movie, a lot of men in this movie are sort of, um, this is very much a kind of before they were famous situation. All right. And for Day of the Dead, 1985, of course, written and directed by the late, great George A. Romero. Um, <clears throat> starring, again, this is a cast of people. Some of these people you probably have just seen in things every now and then, but more than likely you're not very familiar with most of this cast. Uh, we have Lori Cardill as Dr. Sarah Bowman. Terry Alexander as John, our helicopter pilot. Joseph Pilato as our um, particularly nasty Captain Henry Rhodes. Jarleth Conroy as uh, Billy McDermott, our um, uh, radio engineer um, and uh, resident drunk. Anthony DeLeo Jr. as Private Miguel Salazar. Richard Liberty as Dr. Matthew Logan. Sherman Howard plays our um, conditioned zombie, uh, conditioned living dead bub. Uh, Gary Howard Clark uh, plays Private Walter Steele. And Ralph Marrero plays Private Robert Rickles. There's also a, a fun little, uh, also a fun little cameo from Greg Nicotero, who um, obviously gets his start in these, um, in these, in these, the dead series of movies. I, I think he's, I think he gets started in Dawn of the Dead doing special effects, um, and, and he, I know he's in he's in most of these uh, most of Romero's productions as well. And uh, if you if you know that name, it's because he's involved in all sorts of stuff with The Walking Dead, between makeup, production, show running, writing. Uh, I think he even directs episodes. Possibly, uh, Greg Nicotero is uh, has his fingerprints all over has had his fingerprints all over the zombie genre for forty plus years. Um, there is some very interesting stuff with this particular um, with this particular movie. Um, mostly that um, I do find this very interesting that this is like Romero's favorite of of the original Dead trilogy over Night and Dawn of of the of the Living Dead. Um, he thoroughly thinks he thoroughly enjoys this one and thinks that this is his favorite, which is just I don't know, just very interesting that this one is his favorite. I don't disagree with him. It's really great. I, I enjoy it. But um, but uh, just surprises me a little bit. Um, there's like this great scene uh, that opens the movie, this dream sequence with uh, Doctor Bowman, where it's actually it was actually featured in uh, Stranger Things, uh, where they're at the the most recent season of Stranger Things. Um, when they're watching at the drive-through, we see all the um, zombie hands come through the wall. Um, one of the one of the more iconic shots from this particular movie, and. Um, apparently the wall was like just sort of placed there and like the in like one of the first one of the first takes of this the wall and a bunch of the actors toppled over on top of Lori Cardell uh while they're shooting uh just kind of a funny little thing but it, it I I do find this interesting that I just assumed that this was like some kind of soundstage some kind of elaborate soundstage but it is actually an underground storage facility uh outside a uh outside a mine um or in a mine outside of Pittsburgh, excuse me. Um, it's, and it's still like in operation as like this sort of, um, as this underground storage facility, it's called uh, the gateway commerce center. Um, and it's, uh, it's subsurface. It's a subsurface storage facility, um, which is just kind of funny. If, if you're unaware, um, Romero's from, Romero's from New York. Uh, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure he's from Brooklyn. But uh, went to Carnegie Mellon, and a lot of his first movies were shot and take place outside of Pittsburgh. So he's got like a really close tie to Western PA because of that. And this movie's shot in Pittsburgh, although it takes place in Florida. This is also the only of the uh, of the at least of the original trilogy. Trilogy. I don't know about the latter ones, like Land of the Dead or Diary of the Dead. I'm not entirely sure. But this is the only one in which a um, in one of the Living Dead actually speaks. Uh, Bub says. 
Hello, Aunt Alicia, kind of mimicking um, the the training, the conditioning lessons that Dr. Logan's giving him. Um, just found that kind of interesting, but it's not the first time um, that, uh, or I should say it's not the last time that uh, we see uh, the, the the living dead using and manipulating objects um, as, uh, you know, as, as Bub, um, you know, messes with a phone um, and, a, and a razor blade and later is in fact wielding a pistol uh, towards the towards the film's climax but this is the first and again I'm not sure if it's the only instance of one of the one of the living dead uh, having an actual line of dialogue other than you know the typical groaning and growling that they normally do all right so let's get into both of these movies I'll give you a, a synopsis for both and uh, also give you the warning that uh, spoilers abound for a Almost 40-year-old movie and a 21-year-old movie. If you have not seen either of these and you would prefer to remain in the dark as to what's going on, the main plot points and things, uh, this is your warning to go ahead and watch those and then come back and listen to this. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't really feel that bad about going into details of movies that are that have been around for this long for the public viewing. Uh, so we'll start with Death Watch. In the brutal trench fighting of the First World War, a British infantry company is separated from their regiment after a fierce battle. Attempting to return to their lines, the British soldiers discover what appears to be a bombed-out German trench, abandoned except for a few dazed German soldiers. After killing most of the Germans and taking one prisoner, the British company fortifies, fortifies to hold the trench until reinforcements can arrive. Soon, however, strange things began to happen as a sense of evil descends on the trench, and the British begin to turn on each other. That is your plot synopsis summary, whatever, for Death Watch. And for Day of the Dead. Zombies have taken over the world. Isolated in a military bunker complex are a few of the last humans, consisting of a small group of scientists and army personnel. The scientists and soldiers don't see eye to eye. The scientists feel they can find non-lethal ways to pacify the zombies, while the soldiers just want to kill them. And pretty much kill everyone else. Uh, there's your basic plot summary for uh, for Day of the Dead. Um, but let's get into both. Let's get into both movies now with the uh, the same kind of format that we had tackled the previous movies. We'll start with some surprises. Um, I overall Death Watch surprised me in general as a movie. Um, it was it was much better than I thought it was going to be, especially um, when considering that this is a, again, this is a first film. There's a lot of stuff that is very, very well done here. Um, the performances, the direction's pretty solid. The atmosphere and the set design are, are overall pretty great. Um, it's not by any stretch, is it a perfect movie? Not at all. But it's a really, really good first movie. And this was a surprisingly delightful watch, especially considering it gets... Uh, you know, we get in and out of this movie in under a hundred minutes. Um, so I was just overall surprised by the the quality and sort of the the efficiency with which this movie got got through everything, and um, you know, kept me entertained. It was also way creepier than I imagined it was going to be. I, I really thought this was going to be a little bit more action than horror. I thought that there's going to be a little bit more psychological horror um, than sort of the real visceral horror that we do see. Um, even in some of the stuff that is very action oriented, we do get some good sort of scares from it. Um, there's this really odd, the fight itself is very okay, but like the beginning of the fight of this fight is awesome. We have, um, as they're kind of fortifying, uh, portions of this big trench, um, uh, Hawkstone is sort of at his end. Um, and he's, you know, I think he's, I think he's standing there eating something or whatever, and he kind of looks over at this uh, dead body that's huddled in the corner, and Hawkstone realizes that the dead body next to him is not a dead body. It's a German hiding, just completely covered and slacked and, and slicked in mud. And the, he's kind of staring at him for a second, and you get this like reveal, just this little slight movement of the head, and then like the eyes open before the 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 German completely begins to completely move, and it's this really 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 fucking cool little moment this cool little reveal before they get into a uh before they get into a fight and the rest of the uh the rest of the company i think it's y company um shows up and uh you know assists them to, to kill the to kill the german but even in that like even in something like that that was just very horror oriented 
or excuse me, that was very action-oriented, there is still, like, this really fun horror element that was added to it. Um, the As I mentioned before, the set design was pretty great. And in particular, the the trench is very, very creepy-looking. I mean, I, I, I know I had mentioned before um, in both the Movie May episodes where I covered World War One. And I, I'm sure I mentioned it in the last episode a little bit, but World War One was horrific. Like as bad as World War Two was, I think the the conditions for the soldiers in World War One were absolutely unprecedentedly bad, um, and nothing like that has ever happened before or since. And they they did a really great job of capturing that grossness, but also the creepiness of of what a World War One trench would have been like. Um, with just rats everywhere, trash strewn everywhere, the, the the claustrophobic nature of it, and then with adding into the adding in with it the the more supernatural elements with all these burned and mangled bodies that are just lying all over the place. Um, so like really truly a day or night, um, this trench set is really a, a pretty creepy space that they're all um, that they're all inhabiting. I was very surprised that. I was very surprised that this movie pulled a few punches, um, but then also didn't pull a few punches. And, and I, I'm going to get this into a little bit, a little bit more detail in this a little bit later. But there are some like fairly graphic deaths, and some that we oddly don't really see or experience. Um, it just was an interesting sort of. It was just a very interesting sort of like why they why did they decide to make this particular particular death pretty like graphic and why this one, you know, wasn't shown at all. And, and like I said, we'll get into that. So that really surprised me at, at how at how this movie chose to pull its punches and where it really kind of shoved the knife in, if you will. Um, I also didn't realize that we were getting a supernatural morality play. Um, it, like, I, I mean, I, I guess I kind of had some inkling that we were going to get like a little bit of that, you know, pretty much all of these... Um, all these horror movies where where you're going to isolate um, you're going to isolate all your protagonists and antagonists for that matter. There's definitely some kind of moral lesson at play or something that we should be learning. I just didn't realize like the depth of it, and I didn't realize that this was going to be a supernatural movie. Um, in particular, uh, we'll start with Torben Liebrecht here. Our uh, our German Frunzel dot uh, Friedrich is Friedrich the Devil. I don't know. Is he a vengeful spirit? Um, a demon? It's not really entirely clear. Um, but clearly this trench and um, and Friedrich are the embodiment of war and what it does to people who participate in war. Um, you know, that, that much is, is very obvious. It's just the means through which this is happening isn't 100% clear. And then actually I'll get into that a little bit, um, that a little bit later too. Um, you know, the only one, and to sort of continue with this idea of like this, this morality play, the only one who doesn't kill anyone for their own sort of, either for their own enjoyment or as sort of like a, um, as sort of like fitting into the, the machinery of war, right? You know, you're killing because you're supposed to kill that kind of idea. Um, the only one who doesn't do this is Shakespeare throughout the course of the movie. And thus he is allowed to leave this trap. Um, that Friedrich has uh, sprung on uh, on Y Company, uh, so that was um, interesting. Like I, I I didn't realize the the length that we're going to go to to get there. Um, so again, Death Watch overall a very overall a very surprising movie top to bottom for me. Uh, when it comes to Day of the Dead, this is more of a kind of forgot some of this stuff, and this is uh, actually. One of the uh, of one of the original trilogy, one of the original trilogy movies that I didn't see until much later on. Anyway, I want to say like around the time The Walking Dead started is when um, I saw I first saw Day of the Dead, um, and it would have been after, and it would have been after, yeah, it would have been around the time The Walking Dead started, and right after uh, Zack Snyder's uh, Dawn of the Dead remake, which then kind of led to some other of the Dead remakes and spinoffs and stuff. So I watched it around that time. So a lot of the surprising stuff is more stuff that I just kind of forgot about. Um, so I completely forgot how gruesome this movie is, pretty much from beginning to end. Um, and I love that we do it all, and God, we need to return to as much of this as possible. I love 
that every gruesome death, every gruesome, not even death, just like every sort of gruesome uh, image and visual and, and scene is all practical effects. We get some excellent, excellent kills, especially at the end of the movie um, when the zombies have infiltrated the bunker. Um, you know, we we get these excellent kills. And I just was so surprised because movies now, when they're when we're doing some of this graphic stuff, they are going to obscure it with like some dark lighting or, you know, a conveniently placed hand or arm or something is going to cover up some stuff. Um, you know, especially like, especially if we're trying to cover up CGI, there'll be some blurry spots and whatever else. Um, we stick with all of these kills and the horror and the graphicness and the gore, um, from beginning to end, um, with, with these kills, just, just to go through here, like Rhodes death at the very end where he's getting, he, after, after Bub shoots him a bunch of times, which is great. Um, and the wall of zombies, uh, descends upon him. And they just began pulling them up, like literally pulling them in half and begin pulling them apart. And you just see all of his entrails and blood just spilling out everywhere. And never once do we obscure it with anything or pull away to, you know, pull away. We stay locked in with Rhodes as he's getting killed. Love that he's, love how he's screaming out, choke on them, uh, telling the zombies to choke on his intestines. Um, that's fucking great. Just a great, excellent kill, excellent death. Um, love the way that he stuck with it. And it's not even the best of the. It's not even the best of this final sequence, uh, where everyone just gets fucking annihilated. Um, Torres gets his head pulled off his body like a bowling ball. We have him get pinned down, and uh, one of the one of the dead undead shoves his fingers through his eye, eyeballs as if he was like grabbing a bowling ball and shoving his fingers into the holes, and then just begins as the other zombies begin pulling on his pulling on his body and ripping out the flesh from his chest. He's screaming, and I love this little detail. As he's like getting, you know, as he's getting killed, and he's screaming, the um, the t- the pitch, the pitch, and sort of the I don't know the volume or I guess the intensity of the scream wanes as his head is getting pulled off and his vocal cords are getting torn out. Um, it goes like it goes real high pitched and real kind of it, it just like high pitched and becomes real soft as soon as his head gets ripped off. Fucking great. Rickles getting his head torn apart at the eye is fantastic. Just this, you know, the 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 undead just punching their fingers through the side of his eye and pulling his head apart from that way. It is glorious. It is a glorious gore fest of practical effects and really excellent camera work. Just sticking with it, so we so we are we get to enjoy all of the work that um, Greg Nicotero and Tom Savini did to uh, uh to make all this all this shit looking just incredible so just uh can't can't compliment that part enough i did i did kind of forget because for some reason i remember the the scene of them uh flying around the coast the gulf coast of florida i'm assuming the way that they kind of talk about it i'm assuming they're probably like close to somewhere like sanibel island or something maybe maybe even farther towards Maybe even farther towards Fort Myers. I don't know for sure. Um, but I, for some reason, I remember more of it taking place in Florida. Like on the coast of Florida. It's all, obviously, it all takes place in Florida. For some reason, I remember more above ground stuff happening. Um, and I just kind of forgot that, like, other than that opening scene where we see that, um, you know, whatever city we're supposed to be in, be it Tampa or, or no, excuse me, uh, Fort Myers or whatever. Um, other than that opening scene, like, just that everything is underground. And I'm sure that it was. This was all a necessary. Um, this is all necessary for the budget, but I think it does heighten the sense of isolation, and the sense of loneliness and abandonment. And it definitely heightens the sort of, you know, looking at gray walls every day um, would definitely drive you to insanity, which it definitely does. Um, I do remember the conditioning of the Living Dead by Doctor Logan, but I didn't remember. I just didn't remember how it played out with Bub. Uh, shooting and killing Captain Rhodes. Um, it's just a funny, it's just a kind of ironic and funny end to Captain Rhodes. But I didn't remember the detail that went into getting us all the way to that point um, with, you know, with Bub speaking, with Bub, you know, taking the phone and uh, Bub actually saluting Captain Rhodes. So he, as uh, Logan mentions, he might have been a soldier in a past life 
and he still remembers it. Um, and I, I do thoroughly feel like if in that scene where um, where Captain Rhodes declines to salute, declines to salute Bub, I one hundred percent feel like had he saluted Bub, that Bub would not have tried to kill him at the end. I firmly believe that. Um, one thing that definitely surprised me was how racist and sexist some of the characters are. Now, this is like clearly commentary on masculinity, on authoritarian authoritarian regimes and military rule, and you know the the people that are the people that sign up for that potentially would sign up to be in these sort of positions. I get that it's all a it's all a commentary on this kind of stuff. But I was just still very shocked and, and surprised at how often we are slinging around slurs and, uh, you know, particularly slinging slurs around at uh, Miguel, at uh, our black helicopter pilot, John, and of course, at uh, Dr. Dr. Bowman as our only woman uh, in the facility. It's just very, it, it's just very kind of like, oh, okay, it was not, was not remembering or expecting that particular part of it. And of course, obviously, all those people die. Um, I also just, I also don't, I also kind of forgot how um, important the through line of PTSD is. Um, and you know, I, I guess, I guess, you know, PTSD is more of a, more, especially even even by nineteen eighty five standards, PTSD would have been more of a modern term in terms of like what um, people in warfare go through. But just the idea of the 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 mental and emotional stress that um that warfare puts you through uh, i forgot that this is like a very important through line in this movie uh <clears throat> you know obviously miguel is the most pronounced right like he really is having multiple breakdowns and his breakdown ultimately leads to the invasion of the invasion of the bunker and the annihilation of, uh, of everyone but um but uh, dr bowman john and billy um so Miguel is obviously the most pronounced, you know, we see him cracking and he can't perform his duties and obviously then just lets the, lets the slaughter commence. But also, you know, Dr. Logan, Dr. Logan is having conversations with imaginary people and his, his experiments are, while they clearly are, are, you know, trying to discover the, the possibilities for reconditioning um, or conditioning zombies to, to be docile or, or whatever, He's also just doing bizarre, as they call him Frankenstein. He is doing Doctor Frankenstein sort of level work on non zombies as well. Um, you know, we see like the other soldiers are being fed. The other soldiers that have died are being fed to various uh, test subject zombies. Um, the the previous captain who had died or major that had died um, was now just purely for an experiment. Um, and I love the scene where we. We see this like grotesque lab where um, Major Cooper's just a body, brainstem, and part of a brain, and like, but it's still sort of can still sense things and move and whatever else. It's just fantastic. But also, like clearly, Logan has just gone off the gone off the deep end. Um, Private Steele has become hyper aggressive and and just cruel. Um, like there is no humanity left in uh, there is no humanity left in Steele. And Captain Rhodes is clinging, and this is something I'll talk about uh, again in a little bit, but Captain Rhodes is clinging harder onto the chain of command and the mission than anyone else, because really it's all he has left. So everyone is dealing with, everyone is dealing with uh, PTSD and stress and, um, you know, the, the emotional distress that the situation is putting on them in different ways. All right, let's get into some similarities now. Obviously, the biggest one is the morality play. Uh, the ones who end up surviving the battle or the ordeal, however you want to call it, are those who show some compassion and kindness. Um, those who really think a little bit more uh, as opposed to act. So obviously in Death Watch, we have our, our boy, Charlie Shakespeare. He wants them to treat the German prisoner, Friedrich, with care. Even though he's their POW, even though he's the enemy, he's kind of trying to treat him as nicely as he can. Um, he refuses to commit violence against anyone, even, even when he probably needs to, um, he doesn't do it. Um, he should have shot Bradford at the ending. Um, you know, Bradford has, uh, he is threatening to blow up, uh, Doc and, um, instead of shooting him, he shoots the, uh, you know, it's like one of those old, like dynamite. It's like from a cartoon almost like the plunger with the dynamite that, that, uh, to, you know, to blow up something. 
he shoots the uh, the box with the plunger instead of actually shooting Bradford. Um, you know, he doesn't. He just doesn't want to kill anybody, and it, that would have saved Doc's life had he had he killed Bradford. Uh, but he chose not to, and Bradford uh, shot Doc anyway because it's just this moral bridge that he's not willing to cross. And when he does actually kill someone, he kills Shavas, uh, who was paralyzed in in our opening and uh, is just kind of lying on a lying lying down, being sedated uh, throughout the throughout the action of this movie. Um, we we get to the end, and uh, Charlie's going to see check on Shavas and see how he is. And uh, as he he says, oh, you know, you're looks like you have some movement back in your legs. He says, oh, I, I can't feel them. That's good. And he goes to pull up the blanket, and it's not his legs moving. Um, and this is one of the places where they didn't pull a punch, but I, and, but I think they should have gone a little bit harder. Um, he pulls up the blanket and all of the rats in the trench have eaten, um, have eaten Shavas's legs, uh, from the, from the knee down. They've just been t- completely chewed down to the bone or completely chewed off at this point. And just, he's left with just these like pussy bloody stumps and he's covered in rats. Um, obviously he can't feel it because he's paralyzed. Um, he doesn't know that he's being eaten alive. And this is the kind of stuff that actually did happen uh in the trenches in world war one people wouldn't you know soldiers wouldn't notice that they were being chewed on by rats that they were being bitten apart by lice and bugs and things like that um it's it's sort of it, it is sort of a true to life moment obviously with amped up to to really get like the maximum impact but point being here charlie uh, shakespeare does kill him but it is out of mercy it's out of compassion right like he's not killing him because he wants to because if he just lets him sit there, these rats will eat him alive, and that is, you know, shooting him is is the is the merciful thing to do in this case. So you know, Shakespeare passes our, you know, or I should say, Shakespeare passes the morality test uh, in in this case. Um, and you know, that's how that's how when we get to the final confrontation and we realize that Friedrich is in some way, shape, or form con- in control of the trench and the nightmares inside of it. He looks at him and he tells him he's free to go because he's the one who helped him. He's the one who, you know, acted with kindness as opposed to everyone else who was either more than happy to kill or was or allowed themselves to be completely absorbed by the war machine. And obviously, Bowman and uh, and Don of the Don, or excuse me, Day of the Dead, Bowman, John and Billy are the ones who survive. Uh, Bowman is clearly a you know, stand in for, um, you know, people with anti-war and anti-killing sentiments. Um, you could almost say that what she wants is a diplomatic solution to the war. Um, obviously I'm not, it's not an actual war. There's no diplomatic solution, but she's trying to find a way to sort of both get both sides to win. She wants to figure out how we can reverse this, how we can get people back to normal and how we can end the nightmare. Um, so she's, um, you know, she is more of a let's, let's use diplomacy. Let's use politics to sort of solve the problem as opposed to, just killing everything. Uh, John and Billy are pacifists. They have managed to stay completely out of the war, both inside, or should say almost completely out of the war, both inside and outside of the bunker. Uh, you know, they have like their own refuge constructed in the tunnels. That's like very cozy and homey. Um, you know, they have like some, they have like some beach chairs and like an umbrella and like this sort of setup. That's very, um, you know, it's in contrast to the rest of the bunker, which is just gray. Theirs is very much looks like a house, um, and their backyard is you know kind of decorated to make it look like a tropical, you know, give like a tropical kind of feel to it. Um, so they they are, um, you know, they're those three are allowed to survive because they're either anti-war um, or they're just complete, you know, anti-war, anti-killing, um, looking for a diplomatic solution, or they're completely pacifists. Um, quick question here uh, for everyone out there who has seen this movie is familiar with it. Um, are are John and Billy supposed to be gay? It kind of seems like they're supposed to be gay. Um, but again, could just be reading into that with more of a, uh, a modern day lens on things. But I, I do wonder because they are very, it, there is very much a sort of feel like that is there, like where they live and their relationship does feel like more than people who are stuck in a bunker. Like it feels like they live in their home, if that makes sense. Um, so just, you know, something to think about, but, and so that, that's the reason why those three are the ones who are allowed to survive. Whereas, you know, Dr. Logan is, um, Dr. Logan doesn't make it because while he is sort of trying to understand and he's not really 
pro killing everything uh, in the way the military would be. Um, you know, he's not pro killing the living dead. He's legitimately a mad scientist um, who has, if, if if in the if the traditional systems uh, were still in place and we weren't stuck in this bunker, um, you know, with no contact from the outside world and no, no clue about like how many people are actually out there, how many people are actually out there. And if there are any people out there anymore, if this was like the, if the regular, you know, structures of the world were in place, what, what Dr. Logan would be doing would be highly unethical. Um, you know, the experiments, the desecration of human remains, um, he is a mad scientist, and because of that, he can't he can't survive because the things he, and he's also obviously losing his mind, but he can't survive because the things he's doing are extraordinarily beyond the pale. We also have in question here the uh, the chain of command, right? Falling back on the chain of command in both cases is their undoing. Um, so early on in the movie, our first. Um, our, our first supernatural death is uh, Sturinsky. You know, it's after it's, it's very evident that after Sturinsky gets like impaled and ripped apart um, by barbed wire and he becomes uh, he becomes wrapped up like these other figures that he saw just completely encased in barbed wire. It's very obvious that they need to get out of the trench. Uh, but the the shoddy leadership from Jennings, um, you know, per, you know, Jennings is perfectly fine to stand there and do nothing. Um, I guess really his leadership is is a very laissez-faire, almost um, ignorant of the situation. And, you know, that, that leadership is one of the things that keeps them there. And Tate, the one soldier that they would all follow, and they even make mention that, you know, you should be, you should be the one who's leading the squad. Um, even Tate falls in line because that's what the chain of command uh, demands out of, out of soldiers, that you follow the orders of your superior officer. And their superior officer Jennings is just basically saying, "We're just going to stay here because we're just going to say, you know, I don't, I don't, I kind of don't feel like doing anything." So, um, in in Death Watch, following the orders and following the chain of command ultimately dooms them. Where if they had just all collectively made a run for it, or possibly had they listened to Friedrich from the beginning, they obviously wouldn't be in the situation. But their orders and the chain of command are the ones that keep them there. Now, Captain Rhodes wields his rank like a weapon, right? He threatens to have Steel kill Bowman when she shows defiance. He talks, he, you know, he very aggressively pronounces his authoritarian leadership as the way the bunker is going to be run from now on. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of mentioned that uh, Major Cooper comparatively was a, was a pussycat compared to what, um, to what Captain Rhodes is. Um, you know, he has, so he, he has kind of, he's changed it into more of a cooperation between the scientists and the military. And now it is a completely military operation to be, um, you know, everything flows to him, you know, everything's at his behest. And, you know, he obviously later on in the movie, his men are doing all of his dirty work for him. And as I had mentioned before, I'm going to get back to this. The, the chain of command is the only thing that is keeping Rhodes going. Um, in terms of, you know, we talked about all the characters that ha are suffering PTSD and other mental stress, mental and emotional stress. Captain Rhodes, you know, dogged sort of clinging to the chain of command is all he has left. You'll notice that he is clean shaven and his uniform is, generally speaking, still within dress code regulations. Um, whereas everyone else has a beard, they're smoking, their shirts are unbuttoned. Um, or they're, you know, they're not wearing like their, their full, um, you know, their, their fatigues at all or whatever. Um, everyone else is very kind of relaxed because why wouldn't you be at this point? But he is still very much, he is still playing soldier, even though the world is literally dead. He is still cosplaying as a soldier when it really and truly doesn't matter because it's the only thing that he has left to hang on to. And obviously we have um, everyone turning on each other, Right. The all the people let their overwhelming circumstances drive everyone apart instead of together. Um, you know, Dr. Bowman in, in David Dead even says that we should be working together to ease tension. But instead of commiserating with each other about the extreme circumstances, everyone becomes very tribal. And this is how the dead win, right? The the fortress, the stronghold, the bunker, um, everything collapses from within first. And 
when once the, the power structure inside collapses, it makes everyone easy pickings for the for the for the living dead to then enter and take everyone apart because it's now everyone for themselves. There's no organization. There's no um, there's no really even attempt to sort of uh, form up and fight back. It's every man for themselves at that point. Um, and it's it's their own fault. It is their own fault. Um, in Death Watch, from the jump, we have several soldiers that are that are at each other's throats. Uh, notably, uh, Quinn is basically no one likes Quinn because he's a he's a maniac and he you know he's there just as he mentions he is in this war because he enjoys killing people and his sort of recklessness is not taken kindly to by anyone. Um, and then obviously everyone is already kind of questioning Jennings leadership and that sort of questioning gets even worse as, um, as the situation deteriorates, more of the men die. Um, and you know, it's, it's quite evident that the things that need to happen are they need to get the fuck out of there. Um, but it, you know, it, it just doesn't, it just doesn't matter because they are becoming fractured as well. You know, had they banded together, I, I suspect in the same way that I suspect that if Captain Rhodes had saluted Bub, uh, midway into the movie that he would have been, that Bub would have, it doesn't necessarily mean he would have survived, but that Bub would have let him go. Um, I thoroughly believe that had they banded together in Death Watch and had they been a unit that had each other's backs and helped each other. I suspect they all would have been allowed to leave by Friedrich as well. Um, just a hunch. Just a hunch. And then obviously the last sort of similarity here, the setting, um, you know, we don't need to go too much into that. Um, but, you know, everyone's, we're all isolated inside of a much larger conflict. Um, you know, we're in a single trench in the middle of the most fierce fighting in 1917 on the Western Front. Um, you know, but we're we're kind of in this, we're in the space out of a little bit out of time or place or I don't even know if it's like a, an alternate dimension or whatever it's supposed to be. Um, however, however mystical way that you get to this trench, but it's still kind of like in the middle of, it's still in the middle of, um, of this war, but you know, everything that happens is everything that happens is contained to the trench. And then obviously we are in, we are in one bunker underneath what is likely millions and millions and millions of the living dead, uh, up above, you know, there's a whole conflict happening above their heads while they fight with each other under the ground. And, you know, you can see this as the, you know, both both in both situations, this is the micro-level human behaviors in the isolated setting inform the macro-level reasons for why we fight wars and how each situation shows you that when we are at each other's throats, no one really wins. Right. It's it just that the toll is is just too much to overcome when we're when we're fighting against each other and we're not fighting with each other or for each other. Uh, this is a little bit quicker to go through as well uh, in terms of the differences. Right. Death Watch, as I mentioned before, this is a very purely supernatural quasi religious conundrum that Y Company is facing. Um, you know, we we have the character of Bradford, who's very religious, to kind of remind us uh, of this sort of fact continuously and as he and as he slips farther away from his faith from his faith um you know it's kind of representative of everyone else slipping farther and farther away from from their realities and thus reinforcing the reinforcing the idea that uh for shakespeare to survive that he needs to hold on to his morals and values which he does and which does help him um which does help him to uh you know to to escape in the end and it's also very clear that this this bunker and this cycle with Friedrich is going to continue until it continues some kind of test, I guess the moral test until the war ends, right? You could again, micro macro, uh, excuse me, micro level versus macro level here that I, I, again, one of those things that I'm confident in, even if it, this wasn't an idea that MJ Bassett had, I'm confident in that like once the, once world war one ends, that that bunker will just sort of disappear that the morality test of man will no longer be necessary because we're not we're not killing each other at least not again for another you know 20 years or so um so in day of the dead we've really moved on to a different commentary we're we're not getting into religion um even the supernatural has kind of passed us by so if you think about it this way by the by this installment by the third installment of the original trilogy 
uh, Night of the Living Dead is has religious overtones. Dawn of the religious and racial overtones. Dawn of the uh, Dawn of the Dead is squarely about consumerism, and Day of the Dead is about authoritarian rule. So we're we're kind of we're past sort of the um, we're past sort of the spiritual and religious thinking. I mean, it's still kind of there, but we've gotten past that, right? And it it, it is sort of you can also kind of get reinforced by the idea that um, that the uh, that the dead rising from the grave isn't a it isn't a religious sort of or supernatural sort of thing because we have scientists trying to solve the problem there. You know, we have Dr. Logan and Dr. Bowman and I can't remember the other doctor's name who gets shot and killed. We have all these doctors that are there to prove there is a way to either um, to either reverse what's happening or that they're we can condition them just like you could any other animal to be docile, you know, and it is, and also, you know, just to, to further reinforce that, it's all very, it is all a very scientific endeavor because we're seeing Dr. Logan, you know, perform surgeries and also these sort of social experiments, almost like the kind of experiments you'd see, um, tests you'd see with like when we're, we're testing animal intelligence or, you know, we're, we're trying to test, we're testing kids that maybe have like certain, um, uh, certain learning disabilities or academic issues, you know, you, they put them through certain cognitive tests. So there is like a very heavily scientific angle in this one that isn't really present in the other in, uh, the other parts of the trilogy. Um, so you know we're we are not doing super, we're not doing supernatural. We're not doing religion. We are doing the we are very firmly entrenched in the idea that this is something um, you know biologic, chemical, whatever. You know that there's a way to sort of figure out what's happening. Um, this movie as I mentioned that it feels like the, the trench is kind of a testing ground and that that will continue as long as the war continues. Whereas it feels like in day of the dead, this is a legitimate conclusion to the fate of humanity that, you know, obviously the, again, the micro versus macro level idea of what's happening underneath is already happened on top. And thus, you know, the societal collapse was, um, you know, started by the, by the living dead, but then, um, finished by the living. And so the, this movie feels like a very succinct conclusion that there, this isn't a test, um, that this is the end, that this is it. The, uh, Sarah and, um, Dr. Bowman, I should say it's Dr. Sarah Bowman, um, Dr. Bowman, John and Billy, I, I the way I sort of read the ending, they're the only ones left is the end. Um, and it kind of, for me, gets reinforced uh, by the the conversation that uh, that John has with Dr. Bowman in their uh, in their home in the caves, talking about you know how there's just nothing left to figure out. You know, like I, I'm sitting here in this bunker. We've stored all of these like records about um, you know the the top 500 businesses and government records and records on wars and the the economic the economic development for all nations and there's even movies and, and books and things down here and just none of it matters because no one is left. No one's left to see this anymore. Um, and, you know, he kind of concludes it with the idea that this is, um, you know, maybe it's punishment or perhaps even mercy that uh, that some creator didn't want us to um, didn't didn't want us to blow ourselves up and blow the planet up. So, you know, they they stepped in and are kind of doing it for us. But either way, that conversation that John has with Dr. Bowman for me reinforces that this is it that the day of the dead is it's it's now their planet and there are no people left it's this is an end not not some kind of test not some kind of um not some kind of there's no possibilities at the end of this everyone's dead that's just how i how i read the finale and and read the ending as supplemented by that conversation with uh, john and sarah all right here and to wrap up our little last section here the missed opportunities i think there are plenty for death watch like i said this is far from a per- very far from a perfect movie this is like a square c c level movie um maybe some people might find it even more like a c minus c maybe people who are a little bit more generous to c plus i think this is a square c level movie um it, more enjoyable than i thought but still a c level movie that missed i think missed quite a bit um, and I shouldn't say quite a bit missed in some like big ways. So first and foremost, the story gets very muddled towards the end. Um, even 
in the DVD commentary, Andy Circus says that he just he's like, yeah, I'm not really entirely sure what's happening by the time we get to the end of this movie. Um, and I don't 100% either. Um, I mean, like I do, but I don't like, and I say this because it doesn't really crystallize until like the last minute of the film. What the hell is going on in the last like 10 minutes of the film, 15 minutes of the film or so. Um, so it does get a little bit muddled in that third act and, it's I don't I, you know to its detriment I mean I guess it's not like it ruins the movie necessarily, um, but I'll I'll get into a little bit more details in that regard as, as another missed opportunity, but it also feels like maybe we should have a slightly smaller smaller unit to follow. Nine feels like it's a bit too big for. Nine feels a little bit too big, considering this movie is ninety five minutes, and there's like. The, there's like an opening um, where they're in battle and then obviously recovering from the battle and stumbling on the trench that's 10 minutes. So it's nine soldiers and about 80 minutes, 85 minutes of what's happening in the trench. And it maybe needed to be cut down to like six. You know, you could still have, or six or five, you could still have all of them make it to the trench and then have several of them get killed right away. Um, it just felt like we needed to get get the numbers down a little bit or in or you need to increase the length of this movie, which... I don't think that this movie being longer, it would have benefited this movie by being any longer. Most importantly here, the thing that I had mentioned before, in terms of pulling punches, there should have been a lot more gore. This should have been way more violent across the board. And like I said, we do get bits of it um, when we when we see Shavas's legs getting eaten, eaten off by a bunch of rats. Um, you know, the, the final sort of death of... Uh, Quinn's death is is up there. It's not bad. He gets like sort of the sentient, I guess. I don't know, barbed wire, um, uh, you know, rips through Quinn, but even then it's not that bloody. It just, it feels like we needed more of it. We just needed it. And we needed more of it in very particular spots too. Right? Like we see the end result of Sturinsky as he's sort of, um, cocooned in a, in a, in rat, in like rolls of barbed wire, you know, poking through his body and stuff. I mean, it's, it's effectively fairly gruesome, but we don't see it happen. Um, Quinn and Tate get into a fight uh, while Quinn is torturing the uh, torturing Friedrich out in the open, and we get this uh, fight between Quinn and uh, Quinn and Tate, and Quinn knocks Tate over and gets him tangled in uh, gets him tangled up in barbed wire. He can't move, and he takes his. Um, we get we get. Um, you know, we see at the very beginning, uh, Quinn gets this uh, trench club. It's like it's very much Lucille, uh, Lucille esque from The Walking Dead. It's a, it's a short bat with nails through it, um, which would have been an actual weapon, an actual trench club weapon that uh, someone would have had uh, back in back in the nineteen early nineteen hundreds during World War One. But he he threatens one early in the movie. He threatens one soldier with one German soldier with it before shooting him and killing him. And then he threatens Tate with it, and he does kill him with it. But we don't see him get his skull bashed in after he's hung up on the barbed wire. It's not an off-screen kill. We just sort of see from the from uh, uh, Shakespeare's point of view, from off in the distance, a little ways behind, uh, from behind um, uh, Quinn. We see him bring the the uh, trench club down, and presumably kill uh, kill Tate. And it's just like God. We should have seen that. We should have seen him. Even if you don't show his head getting crushed, um, we got to see from maybe from like a closer point of view, like a blood spray or something. We and that's the thing. We do get a lot of bloody headshots. Um, obviously, as I mentioned before, we get to see uh, Shavas being eaten alive. Um, but we, you know, it, like I don't know why we went full on with that when the other gruesome stuff would have been better. There's a scene where our token Scott McNess um, is trying to escape, and he actually gets shot by Bradford. And as he's crawling, uh, the ground sort of something from the ground comes and pulls him down. And it sounds like it's kind of chewing him up as it pulls him into the ground. That should have been bloody too. Like there should have been blood flying up as he was, as he was getting pulled into the ground. So it just feels like they, again, they pulled punches in some weird spots here that they shouldn't have pulled. Um, and it really would have benefited being a little bit more bloody. Um, it really would have kind of amped up the horror had they done that. I also, again, as I mentioned, the story gets a little bit muddled towards the end. And I think the big part of it is that we don't really, we don't really get hints that Friedrich was 
either the entity causing all of the mayhem, uh, causing all the mayhem, or at least the one um, facilitating it. In other words, just kind of like, you know, is he the one who's actually actively calling up these hallucinations and spirits and, um, you know, demons, or is he just sort of there to sort of make sure that the, the trench does what it's supposed to do? Like he's almost an administrator of the trench. It's just not that that part isn't really very clear. You just know that Friedrich is sort of a part of it and it literally doesn't happen until like quite literally the final frames of this movie is when, when you realize that Friedrich is, is a part of it. And it also, even before we get to that point, it feels like there's multiple explanations that are up in the air and possible all at once. Um, they could be hallucinating because of a gas attack, right? Like that, that's introduced early on in the movie that they are, you know, they're obviously it's world war one. They're going to get gassed. Um, and, and besides obviously horrible, besides a horrible gruesome way to die, I do imagine that certain gases probably would cause you to hallucinate and act irrational. Um, or, or so is it a gas attack? are they being tormented by people inside and outside of the trench that they haven't got a hold of yet? Right? Like, are there more Germans there than they realize? Um, have they just all gone insane? Um, are they actually already dead? And we get this sort of, it, it feels like there's this sort of possibility towards the end after Shakespeare gets sucked into this whirling portal of dead bodies, which is, um, did not see that coming. Um, very interesting, but we see him as he's like in what feels like the underworld um, all of the all of his dead squad members are sitting around the fire. It's like a scene from early on in the movie. They're sitting around the fire, and they all like take note of. Even he is there too. They all take note of him, and he's saying, "No, I'm not. I'm not dead. I'm not dead." But like, you know, is that part of it? Is that what was that what's really going on? And obviously, we literally don't get into the last portion of the movie. That again, I mean, I mean, the last minute of the movie that. Shakespeare and the rest were being tested by, again, some kind of vengeful spirit or demon or entity, be it Friedrich himself or if he's just there to oversee things. We don't really 100% not clear on that. Obviously, we were clear that that's like what's happening when Friedrich releases him. But like truly all at once, all of these things are kind of up in the air without explanation or without, I shouldn't say without explanation, without like hints that one of the things is correct until literally the last bit of the movie. Um, so I think there's, there's plenty of, there would be plenty of work to do on this movie to bring it up to even like a B level. Um, but again, still think this was a a fairly enjoyable movie. As far as day of the dead goes, again, this is, this is a classic. I don't think there are really any misses and, um, miss opportunities here. I just think that there's, I just personally wanted a few more insights into Dr. Logan and some of his theories. He gave the estimation that, humans were possibly outnumbered 400,000 to one or more, um, which would, which would put the population of, put the population of zombies on, at least in the United States at like something like, Oh God, like 200 and like some million to about like 600 people left. And I really wish that there was, I really wish that there was some kind of a little bit more in-depth explanation for how he figured this out. And like what, what that even, what that, what that ramification even means, right? Like I needed some kind of like map or something where, um, we show that like, even at best, if 600 people are scattered across the United States, um, there's just like no way to, you know, that they can contact each other or something, or, you know, how do you figure that whatever I just, it's one of those things I'm like, that'd be kind of cool if we investigated that a little more. Um, same with, um, we get the one recording of, of Dr. Logan having the conversation with his imaginary mother, dead mother. I don't know. I think it'd be, I think it'd be at least I'd like more of that to show us that not only is Dr. Logan, uh, unethical, but he's just like completely unhinged. So again, it's just for me, like, it's just a, a sort of like, eh, there could have been more of this. There could have been more of that in terms of day of the dead, but day of the dead is a solid, solid entry into, into uh Romero's catalog of 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 uh, of the dead movies um one of the best obviously if you ask him well you can't ask him anymore he died several years ago but had you been able to he would have told you that it was his favorite um I think it's really great um a stone cold uh stone cold cult classic um 
but I, you know, I don't think there's anything really that you could change other than, again, as we always mention with these movies that are kind of borderline perfect. Sure, you could update the 1985 movie with more, uh, with more modern special effects and things like that, and maybe it it looks it runs a little bit smoother with better cameras, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But there's like nothing that you can do, scene wise, action wise, um, dialogue wise, character. There's nothing you can do to improve this movie. Um, I just wanted more of some things. That's all. So, you know, while Death Watch is probably a C, C or C minus type of movie that. Um, if, if you are curious about it, I would recommend checking it out. It's, it's not like it's long again, 95 minutes. It's got some interesting stuff happening in it. Uh, but day of the dead is a solid B plus to a level, um, a level horror movie for sure. So that does it. That wraps up, that wraps up this year's fright fest. Uh, thanks for going along with me as we explored the horror of the body politic. Um, I think I'm, I'm definitely going to do a, uh, a wrap up mini sode um for halloween um halloween or the day before halloween it doesn't really matter but for next week i'm thinking i'm gonna do a wrap-up mini so i'll save my final thoughts uh for that episode uh but uh thanks for thanks for listening along thanks for downloading thanks for streaming uh this is a lot of fun i thoroughly enjoyed this time of year and uh let's see looking forward to next month i think we had a different theme picked but i think i'm gonna i'm gonna call pull an call an audible um, and there's your first hint. I'm going to call an audible and we're going to talk, we're going to change up the theme for next month. And I'll, I'll talk more about it in next week's mini So until then, thanks for downloading. Thanks for listening. And we will catch you next time.